0: Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that is perfect for when you want to unwind from dominating your opposition on the way to another World Cup trophy. I'm your host Benny and thank you for tuning in. This week we are joined by one of our more high profile guests today. Jared Kimber probably needs no introduction, but let me plow ahead anyway. Jared is one of the more recognizable and respected voices in the cricket world today. Since starting out as an amateur blogger with the groundbreaking Cricket with Balls in the early 2010s, he has published five books, made an award-winning documentary, had a couple of radio shows, commentated cricket for ABC, BBC, and TalkSport, as well as working at ESPN as Crickinfo's global cricket writer for a decade. Now he runs his own multimedia network comprising of Substack, podcasts, and YouTube, trains aspiring writers, consults on cricket broadcasts, and generally shares his thoughts on everything cricket-related. So as you can see, we had a lot to talk about his unique journey in the cricket media landscape. Now before we get to that though, we wanted to give another shout-out to a friend of the pod, Sakabali of the Cricket with an Accent podcast. His recent episode is with author Duncan Hamilton, who wrote an award-winning book on Harold Larwood. It is a fascinating conversation on probably one of the most misunderstood cricketers from history. So do check out the podcast and give them a listen as well. All right, let's dive into the conversation that me and fellow co-host Himanish had with Jared Kimber. It is a long talk, but trust me, it is well worth it.
1: We obviously, um, we are talking on the day of Shane Vaughan's memorial today at the MCG. Uh, I kind of wanted to start with that. We won't touch too much upon it because it's being talked about a lot. Uh, You talked about how you grew up with Shane Vaughan, and there was a time where you saw changes in the people around you, where a lot of people were taking up leg spin, right? But it almost seemed to me like Shane Vaughan was this magical disruptive figure and people wanted to copy him without much knowledge of leg spin in the system, and that's why you don't have a lineage of leg spinners in test matches. So, like, what do you think about that? That was the impression I got that people wanted to disrupt everything, rip the ball across, but they didn't have the yeah. knowledge to.
2: No, I think I think what happened was that it is funny. Someone someone um, sent me a message recently saying. Um, you said there was no leg spin before Shane Warne. Uh, in fact, two people said it. Mark Nicholas said it to me, and he said, "What are you talking about? Peter Sleep and uh, you know um, Trevor Holmes and 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 all uh, you know Terry Jenner and all the, and Kerry O'Keefe. They all played for Australia, and I was like, and no one noticed, right? And then someone else said to me, "Oh, Abdul Qadir and Mushraaq Ahmed and um, Anil Kumble," and I was like, again, it was a secondary skill. Uh, most teams didn't have them most teams weren't that interested in them. If you look at what happened in Australia, it went from a thing that you threw the ball to when literally nothing was happening. Um, It went from that to the most important person in your team. And it wasn't just in Australia. After Shane Maughan, England used leg spinners. Um, South Africa had a left arm wrist spinner. West Indies found more leg spinners. New Zealand tried to find leg spinners, right? Um, Even in Asia, there was like a push. And and despite the fact that leg spin was probably, well, maybe not stronger, well, certainly stronger in Pakistan, but maybe not quite as strong in other places, but there was a push there to find the next Shane Warne. The thing was that Shane Warne was LeBron James, um, but a leg spinner, right? His physicality can't be imitated. What he did physically, other people can do that. People could spin the ball as much as him. Um, and people could control the ball as well as him. They couldn't spin the ball as much as often as him or control the ball as often as him. Right. And that a- comes from a physicality. So when you're trying to copy it by just getting a young kid to come in and rip the ball, you're like, you're missing all the other parts of leg spin. Right. 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 Yeah. And also like that's one particular kind of leg spin, which we've never had before. Murali and Shane Warne are probably two perfect examples of bowls we'll probably never have again. Murali because we won't allow anyone to bowl that action. Shane Warne because you probably can't bowl that action, right? Um, I remember when the deucer came along and people would say things like, oh, we should let people chuck so they can bowl the deucer. And I was like, how many people in the history of cricket have ever mastered the flipper? Is it four? Hmm. Is it five? Right? No one ever says we should let people chuck so they can do the flipper. The idea is that some of these things are hard. And the fact that he could control... The fact that he could spin the ball with the amount of spin that he did and control it the way he did and still had the variations that he had, uh, you know, it made him an absolute – it's almost like a triple unicorn, right? right? And I think what happened specifically in Melbourne but in most of Australia and then eventually throughout the rest of the world as Shane Warne becomes a celebrity is people like look at that one thing and just like, right. oh, great, we'll do that. And, you know, to go back to the LeBron James thing before, it's like, oh, great, if we can only find another six-foot-eight guy – who is built like a tank, who also happens to have the brain of Chris Paul, you know, will have another great a uh, player. And it's like, yeah, but if we had that, LeBron wouldn't be special. The reason LeBron James is special is because he has the mental and the physical um, specialities that other people don't have. And I think that that's specifically what Shane Moore had trying to replicate that just by spinning the ball hard is misunderstanding everything else that he did. And, Weirdly enough, you look at someone like Mitchell Swepson coming through at the moment, he's a decent leg spinner. Forget the physical stuff, which he doesn't have like Warn. He doesn't have the technique of Warn. Technique is so important when you look at Warren. He had an absolutely solid technique of a leg spinner in a way that probably, again, hadn't existed before him if you really want these kids to be able to, you know, uh, fix him, first understand the fundamentals, then understand what they can and can't do like Ward, then understand that Legspin had been very successful at times before Ward and even after Ward in different ways. That wasn't what happened. What happened was everyone was coming in and ripping the ball. They weren't as strong as him. They weren't as smart as him. uh, And they weren't as technically adept as him. And it meant that what we had was a bunch of failures around the world yeah, in Melbourne specifically, but everywhere really from, from every, every, every corner of the land had a failed chain somewhere who took a bunch of five wicket hauls, ragging them ball sideways, and then was promoted in their teams and never took another wicket again. We had a guy in, um, we had a guy played for Queensland. I think he's a melbourneian Dan Doran, who I think might be a coach now. I've got a feeling he's got a first-class bowling average of 65. Oh. <laughs> and he played... You have to go back and have a look at it. He had one of the most remarkable careers. I'm, I'll try and interview him about it one day. He basically played as a leg spinner. He couldn't bat. Like, he could hold a bat, but like he wasn't even as good as, like, Ashley Giles. Um, he basically played as a leg spinner in Queensland when they didn't need a leg spinner. Right. They picked him... Just because it was the thing to do, and because occasionally when nothing's happening, we can throw in the ball. But he never took any wickets in any situations, right? He wasn't up to it. And I'm not having a go at him, but what I'm saying is that, that was that is what happened in cricket. And for you can respect Bill O'Reilly and Richie Beno and Abdul Qadir as absolute masters of the art before um 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 Ch- Chandra Sekar. They were great leg spinners before Warren of them changed the game the way that Warren did and weirdly as you've said kind of for the worse because people were trying to do it it's like you know you get a you know you get someone it's a bit like when you know it was it in, in rugby when every player played like Jonah Lomu afterwards and it's like eventually you could actually find a physical specimen like Jonah Lomu to play like him but when everyone played like Jonah Lomu no one played like Jonah Lomu anymore right yeah. and in Warren's case, you couldn't even play like Jona Lomu because he was such a different physical specimen. It was a it was a freak accident. He was supposed to be a footy player. He was just too short and too slow. Yeah,
0: I I, I remember uh, when I was when I was following Shane Warren in the late '90s and early 2000s. The closest contemporary I could think of, uh, at least from an Indian perspective, was Anil Kumble. And I would think, why can't Anil spin the way turn the ball uh, the way that Shane Warren seems to, but know found success in his own way. Yeah. Um, so do you think that kind, because Anul Kumbay didn't rely on prodigious turn. He relied more on those subtle, like outwitting the batsman with just the line and length. No leg spinner has ever relied on turn except for Warren. Right. And I think that's the key because Shane Warren really, he focused on that, which confounded the batters compared to other leg spinners or spinners who or they use, like, different tools in their arsenal. Yeah. But Shane Warren, and he, he also, the personality went along with it, I feel. It was both the cricketer and the personality.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, yeah. I mean, Anil Kumble is, Anil Kumble, mushtaq Ahmed, um, uh, Abdul Qadir, they're all different versions of showmen. You know, Anil Kumble is, you know, the nerd showman, probably. And mushtaq Ahmed was sort of the excitable kid. And Abdul Qadir was like, you know, the wizard Um, but they didn't have the overarching impact that Shane Warne had on people who were facing him. So, so, Anil Kumble really, really bothered some players when they faced him, but I don't think we had the multitudes of the sort of Daryl Cullinan type players who literally their careers were ruined by the thought of Shane Warne, right? And and a part a part of that was just that that massive turn. I mean, if you think about it, it's almost like it's like a wrist spinning version of Monty Panesar, but with all the other skills. Because Monty Panesar <laughs> is a different kind of physical athlete than a lot of spinners. The same as Warren, you know, huge hands, quite big, stronger than most uh, people, and has the ability to turn the ball prodigiously. But he didn't have all the other bits. What he didn't have was the psychology. What he didn't have was the mastery of the the in-between skills. So what you have with Warn is you have the mastery of, um, I'm going to spin this ball sideways. Next ball, I'm going to spin with a little bit of overspin. And the next ball, I'm going to spin sideways, but from wider on the crease. That's what Anil Kumble could do. But Anil Kumble didn't have the physicality of the ball. Anil Kumble's stock ball, most test players could face it unless you're on day four or five on a spinning pitch, right? Shane Warne's stock ball, most test players couldn't face it. So you have this physical imposing thing, and then he had all the other skills. He was probably the first bowler to completely understand how the crease worked, you know, where you stood on the crease. Um, And a lot of that was because he spun the ball a lot further. He had the ability to use that crease further than anyone else. But we now see Mark Wood using the crease like that. We now see... Muhammad Siraj using the crease like that, right? right. There's no reason that, that, they, that fast bowlers couldn't have done this before, right? And Ian Bishop's one of the few that when I've gone back and had a look at old footage, really did it. And it's not that old bowlers didn't use the crease, but they didn't understand specifically always why they were using the crease. Shane Moore hmm. understood why he was using it and used it. So then, again, you're talking about the different psychology. And then you just have that, you know, the... Um... <laughs> so there's two things that spinners usually aren't incredibly confident and physical specimens, right? right. Most spinners are shit <laughs> athletes. They might have good wrists and good fingers, but, you know, look at Phil Tufnell. I mean, it looked, it's ridiculous that he ever played professional sport, right? And, and you know, Harbhajan Singh, another one. You look at some of these guys and you're like, what? Right?
0: Yeah. And
2: the other thing that a lot of them have is they bowl one bad ball and you can see it suck out of their face. Shane Warne had the physical capabilities. I mean, as I said, he should have been probably an athlete in another sport. And then on top of that, he had the ability to make his worst ball feel like it was part of of a plan and you're about to fall into it, right? And all those things coming together, I think Abdul Qadir probably had that side of it. Um, But he wasn't a, a freakish physical specimen in the way that Warne was, right? And so you have that combination of all those different things. And that's the difference between being a great leg spinner and Abdul Qadir, Mushtaq Ahmed and uh, Anil Kumble are all great leg spinners and being what Warren was, which is this hybrid of all the best things that happen in leg spinning in one go. And probably the only thing he didn't have was that ability to bowl that little bit quicker when he got on, this, on some of the slower wickets against the, the better players to spin in Asia. And it's like, that's... You know, if you go through it, I don't think there's anything else he was probably missing from his career. And one of the best things to look at it is, up until Shane Warne, the main delivery of all leg spinners was wrong That was the point of doing mm. Abdul Qadir, Mushtaq Ahmed, even, even Anil Kumble, who didn't spin his wrong in a long way. It was having that wrong that kept the batters in place, right? Uh, Richie Beno, Tiger Bill O'Reilly, you know, all those guys. It was only really Clary Grimmett who had the flipper. And even then, his wrong was still his main thing. Warns the first leg spinner, whose leg spinner was so good, he didn't need a And
1: You probably combine all this with the smarts he had, right? I was reading his book, and he was always thinking, he was like a scientist, he knew that he could get the ball to drift if he tilted the seam so much, and he knew all that. So you combine the physicality and the consistency with the smarts, right? And therefore, you have a triple unicorn, right? Yeah, sometimes I think that
2: if you if your main skill. So most professional athletes are there because they have a specific skill that is inherent to them. Right? So, so so you look at um uh you know you look at someone like uh Roger Federer, right? And you go his specific skill is is probably the court movement. Right? It's the ability to move around the court with perfect balance at all times. So other people can move at the same speed as him, at a similar physical, you know, height and, and strength to him, but they don't have the balance, which means every time he gets to the ball, he's in the position to hit it back. There are a lot of tennis players who are very good movers, but they're always kind of hustling, and their head's not always in the right spot, and their hands and their feet are not on the right spot. Right? When you have that kind of basic skill that is available to you, it means you don't have to work on worrying about that sort of thing, which means that you could spend the majority of your time thinking about the next level. Right? Right. So Ashwin's a perfect example of this. Nathan Lyon spends all of his time just trying to get his normal off-spinning delivery correct. You could see it. You can see it in his technique. You can see it in the way he bowls. Ashwin's basic off-spin delivery is so potent that he – he can actually play around with everything else because a worst worst case scenario, he can just go back to the off spin and it will still be really good. And mm-hmm. I think, in some ways, that's the difference between Anil Kumble and Shane Warne. Again, is Anil kumble he had to stay ahead of the game, so he's always tweaking and thinking and and doing all these little things. Whereas Shane Warne's like, I can bowl six leg spinners here on the spot, and they're not going to hit me because of my physicality. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to be thinking about. Plan B, Plan C, Plan D. So they can literally go on that. And I think you see the difference between those kinds of athletes when they have a skill set that is so advanced to everyone else's. It can sometimes allow for them to become mentally smarter than other players. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think Shane Shane Morin is not a smarter person than Graham Swan. Mm-hmm. Shane Morin is not a smarter person than Anil Cumble, Shane Morin is not a smarter person than Ashwin. Uh, you know go through the list right like I've met these guys Shane Warne's not a particularly smart person right and I'm not I'm not saying he wasn't he didn't have incredible cricket smarts but he's not an incredibly smart person but because his main skill was so much better than everyone else's he had the ability to improvise and bring other things into it and I think that to go back to the Monty Panasar thing he I think he was frustrated with Monty Panasar because he didn't, Monty Panesar had this huge advantage over everyone else. What's Monty Panesar? Six foot two, six foot three, quite strong in the shoulders, quite a good athlete, huge hands, rips the ball. But Monty Panesar, that's all he ever did. And in Shane Warne's head, it's like, no, we've well, already got that advantage. Now, come closer to the stumps, come wider of the stumps, bowl an undercutter, bowl an overspinner, you know, all these sorts of things. And I think in Shane Warne's case, it came very naturally to him for whatever reason. Because his technique was so sound and the spin he got was was so prodigious that he could like play with all those other things so in some ways not to downplay his his genius because a lot of the things that he did I don't think massively existed before although I don't think Abdul Qadir was that much further back than Shane Warne he just didn't have the physicality to match it but what Shane Warne did really then was just go well okay I'm going to bowl 18 consecutive leg spinners in a row in this position. No one's going to hit me. And then I'm going to fuck with them a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to come wider and I'm going to do all these little things. You can do that when you have such a big physical advantage in the first place. So a lot of the mental side of of Shane Warne probably comes from the fact that he was already so ahead of the game beforehand, right? Whereas if you're Anil Kumble, you're probably spending a lot of your time trying to think, how do I stay on, right? How do I keep this guy under pressure? You know, Abdul Qadir, you know, Abdul Qadir, they say he used to play an hour ahead, right? So at the start of his spell, he'd bowl a wrongen. And that particular wrongen would be a really obvious wrongen, right? right? And then he wouldn't bowl another wrongen for about half an hour. Then the next wrongen he would bowl would be the slightly harder to pick wrongen, but he'd bowl it a little bit slower and a little bit shorter so the batter would still see it, right? So they've seen two wrongens, they're expecting the wrong, then eventually he bowls the wrongen you can't see. But he waits an hour, you know, half an hour or an hour to be able to unfurl that. Yeah. Shane Warne could all do all that in an over because he had that physical advantage over the batters, right? Of my stock ball is one of, if not the most dangerous ball in all of world cricket, right? Yeah. I don't need to wait hours to be able to do this. So he sped up the process that Abdul Qadir did. And he didn't have to worry about staying on the way that other leg spinners had before because even if things weren't going his way, he'd just go, well, I'm just going to rag the next 15. And then eventually, then I'll get into my routine. And I think that those sorts of advantages allow you to think about the game in a different way. If you do, as I said, Monty Panasar never did. And I'm, you know, I'm sure there are other, you know, Suleiman Ben's another perfect example of like, how do you be Suleiman Ben and not be successful? You're six foot eight right. and you can rag the ball you should be one of the best bowlers in the world. And when you go through, um, uh, was it in your, did your piece, did you, Hemanesh, did you have Suleiman Ben or was it in one of my things that I had him?
1: I had him in one of my tables and we talked about him, I think.
2: Wasn't he at the bottom of accuracy? Yeah. Yeah. If he gets his fundamentals right, if he gets that front arm up correctly and he doesn't collapse at the crease, Suleiman Ben would still be playing. I don't know how old he is, but he'd still be playing now and he'd still be taking wickets. Right. Yeah. And he didn't, in Suleiman Ben's case, he probably wouldn't have even ever needed to be that smart, right? But the point is that because he had that advantage, if he'd been able to make the most out of it, he would then have been able to do all the other little things that, yeah. that Harath has to do, right? Yeah. That that, that the, You know, Harath is a freak of nature because he, he he shouldn't have been able to survive in the career that he did. But Harath, if you look at him on the crease, he was he was moving around the crease not to have a tactical advantage over the batter, but to make sure that he had... He was in charge of the game. Mm-hmm. Warn is doing it with this advantage. right? right? So it's the combination of, of those two things that I think make Warn just that, that next level.
0: And I think just for all the reasons uh, that you mentioned, Shane Warn is such a unique cricketer that I don't think we'll ever see. And it, it's almost like a cliche when we say we'll never see another of his like, but I think in Shane Warn's case it's genuinely true and it'll be fair. Uh, to say that, and uh, he will be missed. Now, we do want to get to you, though. We want to talk to you about you. Um, Your journey, Jared, from amateur blogger to someone who runs his own multimedia network, Uh, while training aspiring writers and consulting on cricket broadcasts, among various other things. uh, I think it is fair to say it is a very uh, unique and unusual journey because I remember first following you back in 2010, I believe, when I think you used to go on test math, sofa, you used to like commentate then, and then cricket with balls, obviously. Um, But I, I, I kind of wanted to know, is there anything, now when you look back, that is very surprising about your trajectory? Everything or... is
2: surprising about my trajectory.
0: Well, do you think it's easier these days to come from like a, a non-conventional background and do the type of work that you currently do?
2: I mean, there's still only me doing it. Like, I don't think anyone else has managed to put a career together like me, uh, like I right. have. So I would say it must still be hard. Otherwise, the... I, I remember when Cricklewood Balls got big, there was a bunch of other blogs who basically did the same thing. Mm -hmm. none of those people work in cricket now
0: that's including me i had a blog for every while didn't go anywhere
2: well everyone did and then i remember i can't remember what it was but lawrence booth when he took over wisdom was like we are so sick and tired of getting jared kim articles from not jared kimber um (laughs) so much had i changed the way that people wrote about cricket that they were trying to copy me from there it's kind of been everything right so like almost everything i've done has been a similar path that people have tried to do and no one else has managed to do it and i don't know why that is um but i'm probably a combination of a bunch of freakish skills myself that i didn't even know i had um coming up and uh, you know the, the most writers aren't good at broadcasting right that's, that's right but, you Fair know to say. and so having those two skills was very very lucky because it allows me to go between the two Almost no writers can do analysis work. Um, so then I straight away I have a third one. Most analysts can't walk into a room and, you know, my second day at St. Lucia, they got me leading a team meeting with, you know, Corin Pollard and Darren Sami and um, Muhammad Sami and uh, David Warner and all these people in it. I don't think the average analyst is coming in on day two and leading that meeting. And right. all these random skills that I had, So I probably got to a point now where the majority of people in cricket who know who I am, at least kind of respect my journey, even if they don't understand it. So former Mm -hmm. players, for instance, there was a big period of time where former players didn't really get it. And now that social media is a bit more normal, they don't, they kind of get some of that stuff a bit more and they get the analysis a bit more. Um, And and so if I'm in a situation with you know, with a big-name former player now, they're asking my opinion, right? Again, right. that probably isn't the case with the next generation sort of coming up um, as specifically. And look, a lot of it is just dumb luck, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, it was right place, right time. I was probably the first person to cover global cricket. That was a gap in the marketplace that I didn't really know at the time. Uh, I didn't know, you know, you you talk about test match sofa when test match sofa came through again. I happened to be living in London at that time. Norcross needed a sparring partner who actually knew as much about cricket as he did. Uh, Turned out I was pretty good at broadcasting as well. Again, all dumb luck. Like I'd never really, before test match sofa, never really done broadcasting. Uh, The same with the analysis, right? Like, Freddie Wilde told me once that he was trying to have my career and got lost on the way and ended up becoming, you know, a T20 analyst. Well, I kind of did the same (laughs) thing. And, you know, all these things sort of happen randomly. And I remember Andrew Fernando saying once that I don't actually have many skills. And he's right. I don't have many skills. It just happens to be the ones that I have are really, really handy. Um, Right. And that they've worked quite well for me in building this random career. And then the other thing that I do that most people don't do is I think most people find something that works for them and that's what they do for the rest of their times. Uh, you know, there are thousands of writers who do that, who, very talented writers, who write the same things over and over again, just with different names in it. I never had that. Um, I, remember, I remember when I got, Wisdom got me in to write um, the blogs. So it was like, you know, best blogs and, and, and Jared Kim going to write who the best, best blogs are. And I did it for like two years and then I gave it up and they were like, why are you giving this up? No one ever gives up a wisdom commission. Right. And I was like, oh, I'm bored of it. I don't want to read the blogs anymore. <laughs> and it didn't even, most cricket writers, that was the weirdest thing to ever say, because to most cricket writers, why would you ever give up a steady bit of freelance every year? And I was like, that's not how I do things. And you know, that. I suppose my career has been like that the whole way. Like even cricket with balls, as big a part of it was, you know, as, as it was to my life, like, it's just like eventually I just shut the website down. I was just like, oh, it's done. It's a living, it was a living, breathing thing and it existed and it done. And, and I suppose that has allowed me to learn new things and develop in new ways that most people in the media don't. Most people in the media find their niche and they find a hook. And then when those jobs start to go, they, they try and find what the next one is. I'm usually about three or four years ahead of what everyone in the media is doing, which doesn't help in terms of making any money, if I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, but it keeps me much more interested, and it means I learn a lot more skills. Um, right. And so <laughs> I remember when we were doing um, – well, was the original show was Two Pricks at the Ashes, where me and Sam just went out there and filmed ourselves at the Ashes. And you should have heard the English journal. This is not real cricket writing. You shouldn't be doing this. This is an embarrassment. A year later, all of them – like doing videos on the side of the ground with the cameras, <laughs> and me just pissing myself laughing at all of them, um, and you know it, it's it's been that kind of thing over and over again. And I, I'm very good at creating things that work for me, um, you know, whether it be polite inquiries, or um, whether it be you know the cricket say this hour, or whether it be Red Inca now or my YouTube channel. I'm not very good at doing what other people do, but I'm very good at doing things that I know will work for my peculiar set of skills.
1: Almost like the Shane Warne of cricket content.
2: Almost like the Shane Warne, except I don't have as good <laughs> a, a, um, a... I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? He's, he, because he has such one good delivery, he could hang everything else on it. I have a bunch of random deliveries, and I try and make a career out of all of them.
1: <laughs> on that note, theres there's been this Mushrooming of cricket content creators online now on Twitter, right? You have Lighted Leggy, you have Cricket with Ash, you have so many people, but I get yeah. the sense that it's thank you. I get the sense that it's not sustainable because there's no long term gain out of it, right? You do it for a phase of your life, and unless you go full time, you can't make it a sustainable model. So, is there a future there? Because right now, it seems like the only reward is clout or followers, right? There's no financial like content there in terms of reward
2: there's not but there will be i mean there's already if you follow american sports there's a bunch of people who do very similar things to those guys um and do it as a Substack or mm-hmm. you know or you know whatever version of that and in fact i think if some of those guys they put all those videos online knowing that they're going to get taken back down I, always, I honestly think they'd be smarter to actually put them up in a, under a paid Substack.
1: i try to just, hmm. yeah i, I try to get them you, to make a substack, but nothing came of it. But yeah.
2: Oh, look, it's really hard. I mean, when I started cricket Balls, it was the same thing. I always thought we'd be better off together than apart, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to bring in. And this is the big thing is that there was this big movement a couple of years ago that real journalists never did it, real sports writers never did anything for free. And I was like, my whole career is based on doing things for free. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you you build that up, but the problem with doing stuff for free is most people drop off. And one of the reasons, you know, to go back to your point from before, Benny, like one of the reasons I'm still here is because I didn't drop off because I don't drop off. Right. Because that's not how I'm built and I keep going and most people don't do that. And, and I think that, you know, you're talking about all those, those content creators coming through and, you know, there's some really good analysts and, you know, incredible people who make different things. I think when you, you have to be aware of the fact that you may not make any money for two or three years. Mm -hmm. And when you tell the average person, I remember, I won't say his name, but I remember there was a fairly famous person on cricket Twitter who said to me, I want to make $120,000 a year. And I was like, writing on cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, Yeah. the only people who get paid that sort of money are either TV hosts or the people who come from legacy, like literally they, they started working for Fleet Street in the 80s and the rate wages going up over and over again, like, you know, George DeBell is nowhere near that amount. Right. Right. Sorry, George, for (laughs) for outing your salary, but, um, you know, most people are nowhere near that amount of money in the, in this industry. And so if you're, if you're trying to make it as a young content creator, those first two or three years are probably going to be almost unpaid. Um, I was a little bit luckier than most that the, my blog got very big and that advertising on blogs was at a bit of a high point at that point. But even then, it was barely a sustainable living. I certainly struggled on it when I moved to London uh, to be able to you know, sustain an income based on Cricket with Balls. And, and Cricket with Balls was you know, by far and away the, most, the biggest blog that there's probably ever been in cricket. And so that tells you how hard it is. I think the one difference now is that there's so many different ways to be able to make money. Uh, you know buy me a coffee and patreon and Substack. uh you know you could you could take some of the skills that you have him and Ash, and, and some of the other people that you mentioned and they could do courses so i do think I, I do think there are now other ways of being able to do things also there's a lot more jobs um uh for people especially doing analysis within the sport but also social media and stuff so you, you look at someone like vish um who's you know, started as my work experience kid. Uh, worked at All Out Cricket, uh, worked at Crickbuzz, worked at uh, who was he? Independent. Um, you look at someone like him. He, I don't think people know this, but he he uh, made a lot of money from working in social media. Mm. Uh, I've done a lot of work for agents um, mm. over the times. I do a lot of consultancy for T20 teams when you know they need something to come in. Uh, I've done consultancy for radio stations um, when they're setting up cricket networks, um, you know, all those sorts of things. Once you do get known, those sorts of things do sort of become available to you. And again, when I started, it was actually the biggest problem with Cricket with Balls was how to make money off it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we sold T-shirts, sold a few, but not enough to make a big difference. Uh, we ha- and part of the reason was because we couldn't sell them everywhere in the world because there wasn't enough places, uh, you know, that would sell to Pakistan, India, England, New Zealand, and <laughs> Australia, right? Uh, you know, we sold. I sold some books and that went okay, but again, didn't make a lot of money. Whereas, you know, now I'd probably just, you know, if I had a blog the size of Google Balls, I'd make a fortune just on Patreon, right? You know. Yeah. And so I do think that uh, that is available, but you do have to understand if you're starting up from scratch that you there may not be any money for a couple of years but that that's terrible but that's kind of how the industry works Mm -hmm. Um, But jared
0: i um i was kind of talking to uh himanish about this offline i was wondering how much of it is also a cultural thing because i don't know if this is applicable like, let's say in India, for instance, financial stability, financial security is such a huge thing that is kind of drummed into your head. And parents discourage kids from being adventurous, kind of jumping out, uh, jumping off a ledge and trying to see what's out there. So, for example, if I wanted to make a career out of um, uh, you know, blogging or cricket writing and eventually wanted to become a writer with no connections, no background whatsoever and no writing, uh, you know. I've not taken any kind of writing courses or gone to like schools for that. I would not get the encouragement and support. Whereas I think and this, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like in other countries, Western countries, like Australia, England, even the United States, I feel like when you're young, you get that leeway, that extra leeway to kind of, you know, do something like that, go and try and be allowed to fail. Do you, have you seen that in your experience? Like just interacting with people from different
2: countries? I mean, yes. There's no doubt that Asian parents as a general rule, they want the backup, don't they? And the problem with the backup yeah. is that, they, <laughs> and they don't understand this, that once you have the backup, it's very hard to actually do the thing you're supposed to do. So yeah. I needed to burn down my entire life to get to this point. Now, The bit I would disagree on is that I had support. My parents (laughs) accepted that it was my decision. So I suppose you could say that it was support there, but they also thought I was ruining my life over and over again. Um, The difference is, I suppose, that I had already blown it all up, so it didn't matter. I blew it up before. So (laughs) education was a very big thing in my family, probably more so than most Western Um, families because my grandfather was um, he was an orphan and he uh, went off to war came back worked in a box factory and in his spare time he taught him uh, he went to school to become a teacher Uh, he then became a principal Um, my both of my uncles became principals Um, my aunties became teachers my mum worked in uh, schools as well education was like the most important thing in our family and I was kicked out of school twice. And realistically wasn't there. I mean, I just didn't study at all ever. Um, so I suppose the the freedom in mind came from the fact that they'd kind of, I wouldn't say given up cause that would be unfair, really? but they, they understood that whatever was going on with me personally was not the same as everyone else. Uh, and whether that meant that it, I'd be a 38-year-old drug addict or whether that meant that I would go on to work out to be one of the most more successful people in my family uh which no one would have had money on 18 years ago my cousins still laugh about it <laughs> in fact one of my cousins is a award-winning architect and the thing he hates more than anything is when people are oh Kimber you're not related to Jared Kimber are you <laughs> absolutely hates it uh he's like I you know, done all this stuff in my life. And now I'm Jared Kimber's cousin. <laughs> and and he, he did everything right. He went to the best high school. He went to the best university. He, you know, became an architect. And I, and my whole family saw me do the opposite. Uh, I do think in Western cultures, it's probably that sort of, I don't know, what would you call it? That adventurous spirit is The license easier. to fail is how yeah. I put it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, what I would say is I grew up, when I grew up in high school, every teacher would say the same thing if you don't get your high school diploma you're going to become nothing in life we were told that if i if I, I wrote about it a couple of years ago and a bunch of people just out of nowhere contacted me just to be like i'm so glad someone's finally written about this because this completely ruined my life and you having the ability to write about it but also having the ability to go do you know what i educated myself I figured that that was going to be as useful as anything anyone else could teach me. So it's also, it's also worth saying, I was just shit at being educated. So I had to <laughs> educate myself. Um, and there are probably more people who've tried to do what I've done and ended up being 38 year old drug addicts than, than have actually ended up being successful. So it is, it is a riskier thing. Um, I, I didn't know exactly what I was good at, had an inkling that it was a few different things that other people couldn't do. Um, I knew that I I knew that I could captivate an audience. I knew I could write things in a way that other people couldn't. I knew that I had a different way of looking at things that was interesting, and I kind of backed that. Eventually, those I would work out a way to use them. I didn't know it would be in sports writing. I would never have bet that it would be in sports writing. And I think my my family, with their education first background, and also uh, Neither of my parents went to university. So it was a real kick in the balls to both of them. Well, not so much my mom. She doesn't have balls. But um, it was a real kick in the throat to both of them that I didn't go to university. Mm-hmm. I kept saying, you just have to trust me. I think I know what I'm doing here. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my uncle when I started my film production company. And he was like, and there was still that ba- there was still that sort of almost Asian background type thing that you're talking about there, the backup thing where he's like, okay, you started your own film production company. He said, if in any year's time, this doesn't work, what happens then? And I went, well, I go to the next thing. I could just see this shock and horror in his face because that's not how the rest of my family did things. Um, One of my cousins, incredibly talented guy, just doesn't take chances. He's just never taken any chances. And uh, my dad never took any chances and I always felt like it held back his career. So, I I do get what you're saying. I don't think my specific thing was that, but I do think that I think there's a lot of very talented people in Asian communities who end up being doctors and lawyers and engineers because their parents have told them to do it. And actually, that's, that's it.
0: how I ended up where I am right now, <laughs>
2: being a doctor. At, and I think we end up with like you know, I always look back and just be like, to be a stand-up comedian. You kind of either have to be an absolutely brilliant writer or a complete fuck up, and I always remember thinking of how behind stand up comedy was in Asia. Like it's mm-hmm. catching up now, right? But for years yeah. it was like, where are all the stand up comedians? And the, you didn't even you just had guys who did funny faces and stuff, and now you have brilliant stand up comedians from Asia, and it's because you have a couple of fuck ups coming through, right? Who have mm-hmm. got off the train, and a lot of that comes from middle classness. Now I, I don't come from a middle class background, so mine's slightly different. But if you do look at the people who do who do that it's when you're in the middle class thing you actually feel confident enough to step off and still be okay does that make sense like because yeah. you do have that backup you do have the connections that later in life you can catch up with right I didn't have any of that mine was a lot more without any safety net if we're being honest mine was very much working class maybe getting towards middle class safe uh, a safety net but I just knew that the choices for me weren't between becoming a doctor like you, Benny, and, um, and not doing that. The choices for me were literally killing myself or doing what I wanted to do. And if those were the only two options, if I failed doing what I wanted to do, that's fine um, because I gave it a go. I knew that my life wasn't worth living following someone else's path. And I had to work out what that was think you're right coming from a western society that makes that a lot easier didn't particularly make it easy within my family i didn't come from money so uh you know at, at one stage i was making 250 dollars uh, a week or a fortnight or something while trying to make it as a filmmaker um that's not easy to live in on an australia it costs four dollars for a can of coke in australia right 250 dollars <laughs> is ridiculous um but I was willing to do that because if that got me closer to where I wanted to be and where I, or I had to be, and that gave me a chance to do it, I was willing to do it. But yeah, I do think that there's. I do think that the way that Western society works in general is that we probably have more people who are willing to do that, whereas the way that Asia works specifically is more, you go and get your degree and you go and get your, your young wife or your young husband and you set up your house, and you have your children, and then maybe when you've got enough money, you can do your music on the side. And it's like, right. it's, just, yeah. it's so hard to do it that way. I, It took me, when was I, When did I become a published author? When I was 29, right? It took me 10 years of fucking up to become a published author. Jesus, if I'd started when I was 35, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It would have been so hard. So I, I definitely think, you know, it's easier for me it's a different a different world that i grew up in and also my i grew up around artistic people in a way that a lot of other people don't my mum was in a theatre company hmm. and i grew up around people who were very comfortable being who they were so it was really interesting the two places i grew up were the cricket club and the theatre cl- the company and the cricket club was really straight aussie get it in ya get a dog up ya all that sort of stuff And the theatre company was these flamboyant gay guys and these, you know, incredible, you know, lesbian women uh, who were really out and, you know, public with who they were and willing to cry and would do poetry at a drop of a hat and all these sorts of things. And because of that, I was like, well, this seems like a better way of going than... A lot of the cricket guys who worked all week and then played cricket on Saturday and called the local bloke, you know, the local young kid a pufter or, or fat or whatever derogatory term they had in their head, right? Um, and so, you know, seeing all that, that there was there was a real freeing part of that. And we, I wasn't in a free part of Australia. In the suburbs, is very you're supposed to follow this template, and I didn't go down that template. But I felt like there are enough people showing me that there are other ways of doing things in and around it and i just i just kind of believed that there were things that i could do that other people couldn't do i didn't know how that would make me money um and i thought you know i thought i'd be sitting here talking to you on a podcast as a screenwriter probably or a novelist the fact that it's a sports writer is a little bit different the fact that i'm a commentator and do analysis. You know, never even—I mean, it never occurred to me to be a commentator, even after Test my Sofa, until Jim Maxwell asked me if I wanted to be a commentator. Um, these things weren't even on my radar. But um, that having that freedom to follow all these different things by basically burning all my entire—you know—when you're willing to live in a in in a shitty flat, and when I say shitty flat, it was behind a race course and we could literally smell the horses shitting all day. <laughs> Um, I had no air conditioning. It was stinking fucking hot. You know, me and my mate lived there trying to start this film production company. Um, I remember, you know, my parents must've come and just been like, what the fuck is he doing? Cause I wasn't young. I was like, what, 27, 28 at this point. Um, but I just had this belief that if I kept following the things that I was good at and that I liked doing, that something would come of it that i don't think that necessarily came from the western part of it but i think the western part of it is that you allow people to not go for their backup straight away a perfect example is um fernando i was telling you about before you know andrew fidel fernando contacts me and he, he had the choice of becoming a writer or going to law school right mm-hmm. and i don't know what the, i don't know what pressure his. i've never met his parents um so i don't know what pressure his parents put on him or anything. But I, my thing was, like, he was like, what do you think I should do? And I was like, can't you go to law school later? <laughs> right? Like, if you really want to be a writer and you fail as a writer, that might be an interesting thing for you to become a lawyer later on, right? if you're still passionate about the law. Um, right. I think it was law school. I hope I've got that right, Fernando. He probably correct me. But I, th- I think that, that – I remember that being the conversation. And I think that it's probably around that point where – people have started making other choices where before the automatic thing was like everyone who worked at Crick info was a former engineer, right? Yeah. And it's like, (laughs) now I think a lot of the people who work at Crick info are probably people who that's their first job. And that's that, you know, uh, and I think those things are probably starting to change in Asia, but yeah, I don't think my personal story is, uh, uh, tells you that much about anyone other than me, if we're being completely honest.
0: But it's a good, good
2: perspective that's a fun story i mean it's fucking crazy i you know you that's when people say oh you know how did you get into the business i'm like don't follow what i did because i don't know how i made it work you know be that's why i came up with my writing course so that people wouldn't have to spend six years stuffing up before they learn how to write
0: right but even speaking of andrew I'm, i'm so glad that he chose cricket over law school because when i read his writing i think he comes closest to your style of writing So he would hate that. (laughs) Hopefully he's not listening then.
1: Apart from all this, you've also been through the whole gamut of working with teams, right? Mm. And now there's a lot of people who want to do that, but it seems like it's a crapshoot. So what would you tell budding analysts? A lot of them are there, right? So they want to learn something. They want to do something, but it's obviously very hard to crack into the system. It's a very closed niche system, even now. Yeah. I mean,
2: I still don't get a lot of jobs, so I don't know if I have great advice for any of them. Um, I think the biggest problem that most analysts have is they don't understand how to get their information across to people. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a cricket team asked me to come in recently and have a look at what they were doing. And their analysts had done, I think, pretty good analysis. Mm-hmm. But the way they had shown it, I was like, you expect a guy who quit school at 15 to understand this.
1: Right.
2: And a lot of it was... uh, I talked to one of my uncles before I took the first job uh, about how you get information across to people. And there were a couple of different things that he told me. One thing he told me that was really important was that people only want to learn if they want to learn, if that makes sense. And what I, what I have been very good at doing is going that there are certain players who never want to come up to the analyst because they don't want to be seen as the person who comes up to the analyst. Hmm. So I find ways of making it more comfortable to them. So I spend a lot of time with my laptop in a bar. Usually I bought one drink and it's probably been sitting there for two hours Mm -hmm. because I'm too busy to get drunk. Um, But it allows them to come up and just chat to me and then they'll go, oh, you know, is there anything in there on me? And I'll always say yes, even though there probably isn't, right? But I can look it up if I have to.
1: Great.
2: A lot of the analysis that is done, the actual analysis is fine, but how you get the information across to people doesn't Mm. work. So you need to know that, you know, when I was in the West Indies, we had Brad Hodge who has a PhD and we had a couple of kids who didn't finish high school. Right. Right. I have to come up with information that both of those people will understand straight away. Right. And I think the biggest problem with most analysis is that that is not what people do. Um, They're trying to impress other analysts half the time, or they're trying to show the coaches how smart they are. And it's like, that's not the job. The job Oh, I can be a worse analyst than you, but I can be better at getting my analysis across to someone else. Mm. And and I think that's a really really important thing. The other thing is to learn how cricketers talk and how cricketers think. Mm-hmm. And that was a you know very lucky for me that you know I spent so many years around cricketers that I almost see you know my job is almost like you know I work with um Amol obviously, and we've never actually had a chance to go in and and do this correctly the way that we would like to you know run a team but obviously Amol is way better at numbers than me, right? Like, you know, he works for Facebook and he's an engineer and he does things and he does things, sometimes I have to, you're gonna have to explain that to me three different times so I can get this, right? But I have the ability that I can talk to him and I can talk to the player who didn't finish high school. And I can talk in cricket speak and I can talk in scientific speak, well, yep. scientific-ish speak. Yep. Um, And I think most analysts are so fixated with pretty graphs and, you know, regression to the mean that they don't know how to explain any of this stuff to people who don't get it. And, and I think a lot of the problem in cricket is that we had a lot, a lot of great analysis come into the game, but always no one with the ability to truly explain it. And I think even some of the really good analysts have probably had troubles with that. And, you know, me and Nathan Lehman have talked about this before and, You know, I've talked about this with other analysts as well. It's like, I think Nathan Lehman and I probably have the ability to sit on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that so many analysts out there, I wouldn't say they disregard the other side, but they're either in awe of players, which doesn't help, or they have no ability to understand what the players need to hear. So, for instance, one thing that I've realized over my time is we use the word average a lot and when a cricketer hears average they think that they're bad right it's like average means you're in the top 30 percent of players more often than Mm -hmm. right if you're average if you're an average t20 player you're probably on the circuit um Mm -hmm. you know you're traveling around and so we have to think about the ways that we use words um Mm -hmm. and we do that and i i think that's the more important thing with analysis it's actually not that hard to do the analysis after a while yeah um, the harder thing is working out how to get it across to people. As far as getting jobs, I mean, fucking good luck. I I don't know how you get jobs or keep jobs. Um, I never lost a job based on how good or bad I was at the job, and yet I lost a lot of jobs. Like it's such a weird industry. Things will start to settle down in the next five to ten years, but this is still the wild west. You know, I said I remember saying to uh, was it Joe Harris? Um, uh, I think I said to him quite early on. We met up. The, for uh, for a couple of drinks one night, and I and I was saying to him, we only need to stick around for a year, and one of us will end up running a team. And I was literally <laughs> running a team less than a year later. It's such yeah. a wild west, right? And it's a very very it's a it's a it's a real burgeoning industry. I think all you can really do is find a way to monetize it in and outside of the teams. I think the biggest problem is that everyone. I, the biggest problem with most people in in these sorts of fields, is you put all your eggs in one basket, and you know I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to become an analyst if I wasn't also a commentator. I needed to be able to do both financially, because sometimes I get lots of commentary work and sometimes I get lots of analysis work, right? Yeah. And that is it's a, I think that's a really good lesson for people. So if you do have a substack that you make money off or a Patreon that you make money off or whatever that may be, you know you do that on one side. And then on the other side, you um, you find another way to make money. And I think that, that that's kind of the you know, the, new, the new model. And if you look at what I'm doing, I'm making money in so many different directions mm-hmm. at, at the same time. And it's because after, especially with, with what happened with coronavirus, it was like, oh, when your major income disappears, you have to diversify and you have to work out different ways. And I think too many people think, I need a job with a team. It's like, great, you got a job with the team. And then next year, the owner changes. Yeah and you're not involved anymore, yeah. right? So if you look at what happened with me, we had, an, I had a falling out with the owner at St. Lucia uh, because he was nuts. Fine, I lose that job. Melbourne Stars, we went from last to second, and I still lost my job because they changed the, own, uh, the, the uh, management structure of the Melbourne Stars. I had a job set up with the Bangladesh Premier League, and then uh, the uh, Bangladesh Cricket Board took over the league and kicked out all the owners, and I lost my job. I had a job in the Scottish, uh, with, the, with the Edinburgh Rocks in the League, and then that league collapsed. Hmm. That's hmm. four jobs I lost without me being good or bad at my job within seven months. It's a shit industry.
0: I want to kind of jump from analytics to opinion pieces. Um, you know, cricket content has evolved so much over the last decade. Um, with both amateur bloggers and fans elevating the quality of discourse uh, in recent times. But I'm very curious about the impact, though. So in terms of impact on the way the game is played or administered, do you believe that cricket content has the means to change or bring about actual change? You know, like recently, um, let's talk about just the, the recent debate over changing the structure of English County Cricket gonna be it just was announced yesterday, so I'm sure there will be more opinion pieces on it, but even something like your article on how to, how would we redesign test cricket? These are all ideas thrown about um and there are opinion pieces. but in terms of bringing about actual change, do you think that it is possible in the first place, or is this yeah. all in a vacuum where it's just for you know people who just read and listen to it
2: no I think I, I think certainly. I think there was a generation who grew up reading newspaper articles and Mm -hmm. they didn't care about what we wrote on the internet. So a lot of us could write whatever we wanted. And now the generation who are involved in the administration of the game do read blogs and do go to Substack and do follow Twitter. Um, you know, I've got friends who have very good jobs at, you know, the ICC and cricket Australia and the ECB. So so I did a, I did a Twitter rant recently. Actually probably wasn't even recently. It might've been a couple of years ago now on, how cricket spends all of its money taking footage offline, and how that actually um, affects the way the game grows. So they're like, "Oh, well, our broadcast partners want this, blah blah." It's like the NBA don't do it, and the NBA get is spread so much more widely. Um, and in fact, as even as the NBA ratings dip, the actual impact of the game does not dip because. You can go on social media at any time, and anyone has put up clips of basketball. On cricket, we spend all of our money taking them down. So I went on a Twitter rant on it, and within an hour, I was contacted by someone from a major cricket board, you know, asking where I, you know, what the idea was, and and all this sort of stuff. So things are changing. I think they are. You know, I think it's just in the old days, the newspaper was got. I remember when um, George was working for Crick Info and literally a county chairman said to him, you're wasted on that website. (laughs) What? Yeah, it should be working for the telegraph. Do you know what I mean? Like what a silly thing to think, but that's how they thought at that point. They thought quick info was smaller than a newspaper. Um, and I don't think anyone would say that anymore. (laughs) Um, I still get leaked stories and like, they literally like, I'll say, do you want me, who do you want me to write it for? It's always quick info, right? um, unless I've, you know, unless there's a specific reason or a specific market that they want or whatever. Um, so that that on its own is is changing. But yeah, no, we look, we definitely, you know, uh, Adam Collins and I went on and on about the no ball problems. The fact that they weren't calling them, um, uh, the, the fact that not calling them unless there was a wicket didn't make any sense. The yeah. ICC were listening. They knew. They agreed. It took them a little bit longer than me and Colo would have wanted for them to fix it, but they did fix it.
0: <laughs> um, I think social media plays a role in this.
2: It all plays a role so, so it doesn't matter if it's social media or if it's you know videos, all these sorts of different things that these people that are involved in these things you know, are also online. yeah, so Fraser Stewart is the head of the MCC Laws Committee, right, and he's on Twitter. And you can tweet him. If you've got a problem with the law in cricket, you can contact Fraser. He's a lovely guy. He'll get back to you. <laughs> if he, unless he, he's actually he's usually too busy, but sometimes he gets back to you. But he'll probably read it. You know. Right. So, and, and you have the ability to talk to those sorts of people now. Um, you even get like, you know, um, what was his name? The Australian cricket chairman. Um, Earl Eddings was just on Twitter. You could have just tweeted him. He got back to everyone, right? it's a much more open and accessible world and it's a much more open, accessible cricket. And these people are reading that sort of stuff. And there's still a few old school people that think only things in newspapers count and and all that sort of stuff. But people are much more open to those sorts of ideas. And also this is, you know, cricket has never been more in development than it is right now. And I think administrators are looking for, information and advantages uh, that they don't always get that they wouldn't always get. And they look to blogs and tweets and TikTok videos as these sorts of things.
1: That's all they listen to us about the Hawkeye data.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes they listen to us about the Hawkeye data and take it up. Although <laughs> I think that was the Hawkeye company realizing we were using their stuff, yeah. but, but <laughs> you know, like in, in, you know, the ability to, the ability to you know do that piece even if that's the last piece you ever do before you know you get thrown in jail um, that that piece will change cricket and you know some of the videos that I've done will change cricket and we're now in a position where we can do that whereas I think five or ten years ago when I was doing cricket with balls you didn't really have that impact mm-hmm. um, you could get read a lot but you got read a lot by you know people who just thought it was funny or whatever whereas now there's there's certainly been a change in the sorts of look, there are a lot of people who have very big jobs in, uh, in cricket who grew up reading cricket with balls. Mm. Right. Mm. They grew up reading, you know um, the quick King tweets and, or oh, sorry, no, what, what was uh, uh, King cricket? Um, and, you know, uh, they grew up, uh, you know, uh, on, on the early parts of social media following, you know, us on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever. And so, they see our opinions as slightly more worthy and, and mm. uh, you know, they don't look down on a bunch of tweets as a bunch of tweets. They just look right. at it as information. So, I, but I think that's probably the case right across. I don't think that's a cricket thing specifically.
0: Um, I did want to talk about your sports writing course, fans with laptops. Mm-hmm. Um, on your website, it says, that so the course was designed to shape the way you think about and ultimately write about sports. And um, I was just thinking, man, if this existed 10 years ago, uh, my trajectory would have probably have been different <laughs> as well. Because I was, uh, I, I, you know, you mentioned about, you know, how most cricket fans kind of grow up with, you know, newspaper articles, you know, when they follow cricket content as such. And for me, cricket with balls was kind of the first non-traditional medium you know where i was like oh well you could i guess you could write cricket this way too so and you were talking about influence influencing people to write about cricket differently and for me that's why i started my blog uh this was you know very directly influenced by cricket with balls but uh, unlike that uh my stint lasted only for a a couple of years because nobody was reading it (laughs) but uh the reason i bring this up is uh and for our listeners do check out the link to the scores in our show notes but i want to i wanted to ask you about this passage in the intro to your course so you you write i wrote like no one else because i didn't know how you were supposed to write about sports i wrote about things that i cared about because i didn't understand news cycles and i wrote with a piece of me in each article because no one was around to tell me not to This all means that I have built a career on writing about sport that isn't like the jobs of others. So talk to me about this, because in theory, it is very simple, but it doesn't sound easy to pull it off.
2: Yeah, I mean, part of it really helped because I was such an outsider. Um, When I started Cricket with Balls, I didn't know anyone in the industry. If you look at the difference between, say, me and Dan Bretig, Brettig was a real writer's writer. Always wanted to be a writer, loved writing. He's got a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of different nonfiction writing heroes and all this sort of stuff. You know, knew all the old sort of cricket writers and and all that sort of stuff. I just wrote. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: don't forget, also, Cricket with Balls wasn't supposed to be as influential as it was. It was just literally, I had nothing to do. And so I wrote it. you know, I w- wanted something that, as much as anything, I was hoping would make me some money, but also like I was bored, and so I was I I, I was writing it. So I suppose, suppose I didn't know the rules of sports writing, and sports writing rules are shit. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're utter trash. If I, if I, I I won't name him because he might not want me, but me and another fairly well known cricket writer were talking about this the other day, just how shit most of Sports writing is, and cricket writing specifically, because it just—it's just like there's this weird. It's like the narrative becomes the only thing you can write about,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and everyone writes about. It's like everyone in English cricket right now is writing about Joe Root, even though most of them know. If Joe Root leaves as captain. There won't be much of an impact. In fact, most of them say right. that in the pieces. Yeah,
0: I agree. Yeah, I've seen it.
2: <laughs> they literally know there won't be an impact, and yet all of them have to write about it. That, to me, where sports running is at its worst. And I suppose, you know, when you look at what I did was, I went, well, what's interesting to me? Hmm. Because if it's interesting to me, I think it'll be interesting to a few other people. Uh know if that would lead to a niche career and i probably probably exceeded a niche career at this point um but i knew that if i kept writing about things that interested me i would write better about them so i suppose that's the first part of it is that i didn't follow the normal sports writing rules the next one is that sports writing was. i remember this great story uh, gideon haig told me about so gideon haig was fired by the guardian so they could bring Stuart clark in Imagine firing Gideon Hague as a sports writer um, and they got Stuart Clark in. And I hadn't read many of Stuart Clark's articles at this point, but we all thought of Stuart Clark as a fairly intelligent cricketer. And, you know, I was quite interested. So I was asking Gideon what his articles were like. And he said, his articles are like what he thinks sports writing should be. Sorry, I started again. His articles are what he thinks sports writers do. And I just went, oh, I can't read any of those. And I think the majority of people coming into the industry before me, and even around when I came in, that's what they were doing, right? Like I've seen it over and over again, and I was like, you know, you'll see a young English writer writing like Mike Selvey, and I'm like, why would you do that? You're not Mike Selvey. You don't have the same skills as Mike Selvey. Why are you here? What is it that you want to say? How is it that you want to say it, right? And so many people, they get into this formulaic way of writing. And the weird thing is that my method was so different that people started saying, I had a formula. I've got about 20 formulas. Most sports writers have one. It's just that they all have the same one. I have all these different ways of writing. And I think people got very confused by that because it was so different. But the truth is that there is no one way to get information across. There wasn't enough jokes in sports writing. There wasn't enough sports in sports writing. There was too much talking about who the next player was going to be promoted or dropped. It's just like, who cares? You're talking about the ninth or tenth best player in a team. There's so many other things to talk about. I think coming from the outside allowed me to just start again and and go at it from a completely different angle. And what I wanted to do with other sports writers is, you know, I wanted to train a bunch of people to be themselves. And it is hard. The easiest thing in the world is to be a, a replica of someone else. But I always say, if you're going to be a replica of someone else, pick three or four different idols, mix and match them all together. That'll still be more interesting. If you're just trying to be Mike Selvey, but you never played 20 seasons for Middlesex, it's not going to work. You no. need to use the skills that you have and the knowledge that you have in your background. And, and I think that that's, that's not taught to people um, enough, and especially in sports writing and you you know i follow american sports and some of the weird sports writing angles that people take over there you know i mean the ringer wouldn't exist in in england because they're so i mean english sports writing is so formulaic and it hasn't changed in 50 years they've just updated the cultural references (laughs) it's so formulaic and you've got so many talented writers and I'm looking at them going, I know you're talented, but I've read this article from you three or four times now. You've just checked in that last week it was about Roman Abramovich and the week before it was about Qatar and the week before it was about Naomi Osaka. It's the same fucking piece. Yeah. Right? And, and maybe it's a newspaper thing I don't understand, but it's like what I know is that you can write about sport in so many different ways and you can – different kinds of pieces can be um shown in different uh lights and different stories and heroes and villains and analysis and data and research and there's just there's no end to what you can do as a writer when you're writing about sports and that's the course that i wanted to start up i don't want there to be a hundred jared kimbers out there because one of them is more than enough but what i do want (laughs) is for every individual writer to be able to find what it is about them that makes them interesting. Right. And that's the thing that we're not taught. Because as sports writers, we're almost taught that we're not important. And that's like, well, yes, you are. Because you're the person sitting at the keyboard. You're the person that's all Roger Federer or Serena Williams or Tiger Woods. You had an emotional connection, an, in, 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 an in, intellectual connection with that person. That's why you're writing about them. Don't pretend that isn't a thing because the person on the other end also wants an emotional connection or an intellectual connection, right? They want to feel that. And so if you take that out, what's the point of that? And so much of sports writing is literally saying former player said this or current player said that. Great. That's a stenographer. (laughs) (laughs) What happened on the field? What does it mean? Why did it happen? Will it happen again? Basic question. You go through my course, that's what you see. It's not genius. It's me just going, why has this happened? Can it happen again? And we don't, in sports writing, so much of it is just not that. It's who's going to get dropped next. It's who's out of form this way. Well, players are always out of form. <laughs> isn't linear? So what the course the course is supposed to be helping people do that um, look i i mean I, it's not like i've seen a wave of great writers on the on the back of it but if i can help a couple of them get better and understand their processes job done there's a lot of information in the course that is you know professional writers have used it all the way through to novices so there's a lot of different levels to the course but the basic thing i want to say to people is there is a if you're a writer there is a freedom in writing and too right. often People don't do that. They're so, oh, well now I'm writing this piece, so it has to be like this. No, it doesn't. It has to be how you want to write it.
0: And that goes back to what you said about changing the way you think about the game. Yeah. And the writing should flow from that
2: rather yeah, than yeah. doing it as what you have seen. You can have an okay career um, as a stenographer in sport. And if you don't want to be a writer, that's fine. But this, my course is for people who want to write about sport. If you want to write about sport and you specifically love writing and sport, you, I want you to put as much effort into your sport as the people, sorry, into your writing as the people do into their sport that you're writing about. Hmm. That means understanding the te- the techniques. That means using that same level of passion. That means working on your craft. Level. There are you know many different kinds of careers out there. Don't get me wrong, but if that if, if you've if you've only got one shot to be a writer, don't waste it on writing match reports that no one gives a shit about. Don't waste it on writing and was a macram said about uh, you know, Harris Ralph that don't waste it on that nonsense. Write about the sport. Write about the thing that makes you love the sport and too many people don't do that.
1: I'll finish with one of your recent works which is redesigning test cricket there was a lot of ideas there that people sourced but one of my favorite ideas is to have a test league how would you design a test league which is not based on countries have you thought about not, it or you have
2: um, not based on countries yeah yeah i, I don't know so when when um Lulat modi was looking at doing it i believe he was still thinking about basing it on countries hmm. um I, I think it probably works better if it's not based on countries. Um, if, you, if you are going to do a test league from scratch, um, you put everyone into a draft and then you eventually have free agency. There's a lot of things we've got wrong in T20 cricket. So for instance, players who have played six, seven, eight year careers still don't get to pick which teams they want to play for, mm. which is nonsense. Yeah. That's what free, free agency says. You have earned your right to be able to do that. So that if you want to choose to make less money but play for a better team, you can. And if you want to make more money and play for a shitter team, you can. And the auction doesn't allow for any of that. The auction's a bit of a jip when it comes to that sort of stuff. And and a lot of the leagues are a bit like that. Um. So if I was going to do it, I'd want to I'd want to do it so that the players have some power if they've already played, a, you know, a percentage of cricket. But yeah, I think you probably, if you look at something like the is it the Super 12s rugby. Uh, that they have uh, where they have what, a couple of teams in um, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, a few teams in Australia. There's no reason why we couldn't have a test cricket version of something like that, quite simply, and then bring across you know, some um, slightly better uh, planning when it comes to player development and player movement and all that sort of stuff. Um, you could have a local quot- quota if you wanted, for mm-hmm. some of these teams, I, I think that would be fine. But I think you'll find anyway that you know some. The, the interesting, I think, I've always found is that the better the sport is, the less the local players matter. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can see why they did it at the start of the IPL. But do you re- Does it really matter when you're going to see the Premier League? Yeah. You've got Ronaldo in your team, and you know, rather than a local kid from Manchester. Like, I really don't think it does. Right. So. I would get away from that, but yeah, you'd have, probably have a couple of franchises in each of the major countries, and maybe you know one franchise in each of the smaller countries. Um, you, I think if you were doing it, you probably want it in divisions. Hmm. Great to have three divisions uh, of what, twenty-four teams altogether? Because if you've got, if you, we, I think we have more than enough cricketers for twenty-four strong Test teams. We probably just have the majority of them from, you know. The same countries over over again right yeah. like england probably yeah. has enough wiki Keeper batters for like seven franchises um uh, and uh, india probably has enough middle order batters for you know 10 franchises right yeah. australia probably has enough fast bowlers for a bunch of franchises so um you could easily do that uh and and have enough strength and then also you know you would you could then have franchises based in in some of the smaller, more developed, you know, you could have a franchise in America and maybe a franchise in Japan or whatever in the third division. And they have the chance of, if they get better, that they can move up, right? Uh, It's not going to happen. I mean, uh, unless, unless, I don't know, Amazon come in and decide that they want to do it or Elon Musk suddenly decides he likes cricket or something. Um, (laughs) It's not going to happen. But that's probably how you'd set up a league like that
1: how would you also like market test matches better, right? Because currently it's not meant for consumption in the modern world, right? They should probably move it to day-night test, probably do like a four-day test thing. How would you market them a lot better so that families and people can consume it and watch them at the ground, right? Because currently that's not happening outside of Australia and England.
2: Yeah. Um, we don't market test cricket in any way.
1: Yeah, we don't. <laughs>
2: you almost have to go back to the start and be like, why are people coming to sport? And why aren't they coming to test cricket specifically? And it's not the length because there are plenty of other sports to go for all day that people go to. There's something going on here. And part of the reason is that we keep coming up with other formats of cricket that we keep telling everyone is better than test cricket. Yeah. Uh, We don't, most cricket grounds are not accessible for families Mm -hmm. outside of Australia. Almost all the test grounds in the world are absolutely terrible if you take a family to them. Mm-hmm. I could say that as someone who takes his family to cricket all the time. Uh, that I, I, Those are the sorts of things. I remember when England were like, oh, we're going to get more families to the 100. And my wife was like, well, are we going to have changing facilities for kids? Yeah. <laughs> right? Ameri- I'm assuming most American sports arenas have all that sort of stuff. And Australian sports arenas do that. And have a look. Australia gets good families into their into – their, um, into their uh, test cricket specifically, but all cricket really. So those things really matter. But firstly, we have to work out how to market test cricket. But if you, you know, on a, on a very simple note, like if you made it an evening game and it was played on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. you would already have a huge advantage. Playing test matches Monday to Friday, which we still sometimes do, is ludicrous. Yeah. Um. You know, we know when people work. Uh. We know when people are free. And we also know that, you know, we're we're setting up a situation where the majority of the money that we can earn in cricket is always capped by the fact that we're getting daytime TV rates. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. So, no, look, I I definitely, if if you're going to do that, but as far as marketing the game, I mean, just, it needs to actually be marketed. We need to understand why people like test cricket. And it's not that it's just traditional. It's that it's brutal. You can't bounce someone out in a T20 game right? You can't work them over for hours on end. I, you know, I'd love to... There are so many great ways of marketing Test Cricket that no cricket board's ever tried. What... We just had Shane Warne die, and what's one of the most incredible images of him is not him bowling, and it's not him being famous. It's him standing at the end of his mark. Yeah. That's is part of the theater. Yep. You occasionally see little bits of it in promos that that TV companies do. But where is that in the advertising? Yeah. Shane Moore is coming to your country. This is him, and he's going to work us out. Dale Steyn comes to Australia. Where is all the advertising going? The greatest fast bowler in the world is here. We don't advertise our players. We don't advertise the opposition players. We don't advertise the things in Test Cricket that work. We don't advertise the things in Test cricket that make it popular, right? With well, there's nothing right. left. What Are you advertising at this stage? Cucumber sandwiches, <laughs> right? It's nonsense. And you see, you see the, you see, you know, ads and stuff that the, these boards do, and you're just like, you don't even understand what your product is. Yep. No wonder you... you T20 is easy to understand. Learn what it is about Test cricket, and the thing is cricket is the third most profitable of the three formats that's still profitable right and if it's not profitable the only reason is is because of how bad it's been mismanaged there are millions and millions of people around the world that will not only watch a test match not only listen to a test match second screen a test match will listen to podcasts will read about them in a way that still doesn't happen with t20 cricket Hmm. Industry around Test cricket is still stronger than the industry around T20. You write an article on T20, lucky if you get any reads. You write an article on Test matches, there's still an audience that reads. There's still an audience that in the in the morning want to know what's happened, that want to come on and, and do all this sort of stuff. Test, T20 hasn't even done this. Test cricket doesn't monetize any of this.
1: Yep. Yep. Let's hope someone is listening to this. Someone gets. The... <laughs>
2: Well, we put it at the end of the podcast. They're probably asleep by now.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, we'll wrap it up because Jared, you have given us uh, plenty of your time and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, for our listeners, you can find Jared on Instagram and Twitter at A. Jared Kimber, and do follow his Facebook and YouTube pages as well. If you haven't listened to them yet, do check out his podcasts, uh, Red Inker and uh, Double Century. Uh, as well as uh, the wagon wheel on Spotify Green Room, and of course his blog, Jared Kimber Sports Almanac, and his sports writing course, Fans with Laptops. As you can see, he is a very busy I'm everywhere. <laughs> we will be including the links to all of these in our show notes as well. Uh, but Jared, thank you again uh, so much for your time. We have so much, so much more to talk about. So I hope you will come back on our show.
2: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Last Wicked. This podcast is a cricket Guys production featuring your hosts Benny, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish. For more details, please visit thelastwicked.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening and from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.